The rest of us are going to be in 1 Corinthians 11 this morning, so if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to go ahead and turn there. Lord willing, we're going to get back into Romans next Sunday. I was thinking we would be done with chapter 11 before summer started, so we can start chapter 12, which is a major pivotable, pivotable, pivot point in Romans. And uh, we're going to finish up chapter 11, and then we're going to move on to chapter 12 and get into all of the implications of being saved and knowing the gospel and believing the gospel. And uh, just really looking forward to sort of itching to get to chapter 12, and that's coming up. So hope you get motivated like I've been motivated for. Well, everyone knows that communion is something Christians have been observing for a couple of thousand years. And every, virtually everyone knows that. Virtually everyone uh, knows that this is something that's very important to Christians. It's essential to Christianity. Communion is just something that we all assume and know whether we're Christians or not Christians. And so one might want to conclude that we all know what it is about. But that probably is not a good conclusion. Now maybe it's because we assume that everyone knows because we've been doing it for so long that we've forgotten actually what it is. Or maybe it's because we want to be so careful to not be confusing about what we believe about it. We're always talking about what it isn't. Let me clarify a little bit. We live in a part of the country, Omaha, Nebraska, is filled with people who believe that communion is actually an atoning sacrifice that takes your sins away. Well, I don't think that's biblical. That's not right. Jesus, once and for all, historic work is a perfect atonement that takes our sins away. And so I spend a lot of time explaining what communion isn't in Omaha, Nebraska. And that's probably true for a lot of you, and it's true for a lot of Christians, a lot of pastors. We're always talking about what it isn't. But given the fact that we've been doing it for so long that we might be so familiar that we assume we know what it is, but we really don't, and also given the climate where we're always talking about what it isn't, it seems to me that we might not know what it is. So this morning we're going to talk about what it is. I'm going to use great self-control today in not talking about what it isn't, if that made any sense. <laughs> we're not going to go, there's a place for talking about what it isn't, a big place, but we're not going to do that this morning. What is it? If someone who was not a Christian were to say to you, can you please explain to me what happens at this thing you call communion, I wonder what kind of answer you would give to them. And I hope that you'll be able to give an even better answer today. What exactly is it? Why should we see it as good? Why should we see it as important? Why should we see it as significant? And I can give you a preview right now telling you what it's all about, and that would be it's all about, to borrow a biblical phrase that's talking about other things in general, communion should be all about fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It should be all about Christ. Listen to this helpful statement. The standout that permeates and upholds everything that happens at the Lord's table is the glorification of Jesus Christ. 
After all, His great gospel is proclaimed. His perfect work is remembered. His command to eat and drink is obeyed. His church is united. His people's devotion is examined. And His return is expected. From start to finish, every aspect of the supper magnifies Jesus, making it a unique act of Christian worship. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to be reminded that communion is about Jesus. I know it's kind of a no-brainer, kind of a duh thing. But we're going to remember profoundly that it is about Jesus. And we're going to be able to do that by looking at some specifics, some particulars. I have a list of six before me as we look at this particular text. I think you could boil them down to one word each if you'd like. Let's start with number one. At the Lord's table, His great gospel is proclaimed. The gospel is proclaimed. One word, proclaiming. When we gather for communion, we are proclaiming. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and you look down uh, at verse 26, you'll see this emphasis. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So this is a communion service today, and therefore it should be a preaching service. Because we're preaching, we're proclaiming. What are we proclaiming? We're proclaiming His death, which is shorthand for the gospel. This is a gospel preaching service. So whether you think of yourself as a preacher or not, guess what? Today, if you're eating and drinking with the rest of us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, you're a preacher. We're going to unite our nonverbal voices together. We're going to unite our cups, our glasses, and our bread together, and we're going to be preaching something. We're going to be proclaiming the gospel. We believe that Jesus gave His body for us, and and He gave Himself up for us to, to give us life and redemption. In one sense, you might say it's the best sermon anyone will ever witness. It has perfect illustrations because... They're the illustrations God told us to use. The hero is always the right hero. The hero is Jesus. Exalting Christ as we eat and as we drink. Think about communion as an opportunity to preach the gospel. Now we can go a lot of different places with that and we won't for the sake of time. But even consider the fact that communion, no one would argue otherwise I don't think, communion is designed for Christians. A time when Christians preach the gospel. Preach the gospel to a watching world. Preach the gospel to ourselves. Preach the gospel to one another. We love Christ. We're together in this and we are preaching this together. A second specific about the Lord's Supper that we need to be reminded of if we're going to see the greatness of Christ in it would be this. At the Lord's table, His perfect work is remembered. His perfect work is remembered. Remembering would be the one word you could boil that down to. Remembering. Look at verses 24 and 25 of 1 Corinthians 11. It says there in verse 24, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Clear emphasis on remembering. Unfortunately, here's what we do. Now, I say we. You're probably not guilty because you're such a good Christian. But (laughs) this is what I do. 
And, and this is what we do in churches like Omaha Bible Church and circles I would run in and circles that you would run in. Here's what we do. We say we believe in the memorial view of the supper and we're so emphasis or emphatic, uh, we're putting so much emphasis, we're so emphatic on what it isn't that we say really dumb things like this. I believe communion is just remembering Jesus. I believe communion... Well, my view is it's, it's only a memorial. As if to suggest it's insignificant and it's not a big deal. And I say I'll be the first one to repent and need to repent. And, and you need to repent too if that's your perspective because, again, we want to so far react to someone who's saying it atones for your sins that we run way over the other direction and we say it doesn't do anything. It's not even meaningful. It's no big deal, but we're, no, we're supposed to do it, so we do it. Ah! Okay? But that, I've, I've spoken that way before. I've thought that way before. We overreact. Stop and think about it. When he says, do this in remembrance of me. Who's saying that? Jesus Christ is saying that. And all of a sudden, our minds can race if we're thinking about what he's done. This would maybe be a good practice for us as we do celebrate the supper at times. We could say, today as we remember what, in remembrance of Him, let's have our focus be on His work of reconciliation. That He reconciled us to His Father. Maybe another time we could say, let's have the focus today be on the incarnation. That He humbled Himself and He came here on our behalf and He fulfilled the law perfectly on our behalf because He loved us so much. Isn't this amazing what we're remembering? Or we could say today we're going to have the focus be on remembering His work of justifying sinners and go down that road. Today we're going to focus on His work of sanctifying sinners. Today we're going to focus on remembering His work of glorifying sinners. Today we're going to focus on and on and on and on the list could go. So when we say we are doing this in remembrance of Jesus, I think we ought to be in preaching mode, right? Proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. We're remembering Christ. We're remembering the gospel, the good news, the best news. The pool is very, very deep when it comes to remembering. I don't ever want to say just remembering. I don't want to have that kind of attitude. Think about the substitutionary nature of his work. Let's go ahead and look at some of the things to remember. I already gave you some of them off the top of my head, but how about if we, we could focus on just the fact that he did this for us. How about verse 24? Here's something we're remembering in verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. That's substitutionary talk. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's at least start there. Let's remember that Jesus loved us so much that he gave himself up, Keyword. For us. He did this in our place. We didn't deserve this. And yet he loved us so to give himself up for us. And it's all over the Bible, this substitutionary terminology. That is worth remembering. Kind of interesting, if you look at verse 23, I'm not going to take the time to read it because you can't see it in the text. And to be real honest with you, I can't see it either. I think I've taken, I don't know how many years of Greek, um, Three, with other classes, four, year and a half of Hebrew. But I'm not a linguist. I'm not an expert in this. 
But linguists, who are experts, point something out to us and they say, original language is going to show that in verse 23, he's using the same verbiage as is used in Isaiah 53. The ultimate uber substitutionary atonement passage, Isaiah 53, and apparently we're going to have to take some people's word on this, he's actually using the same kind of language, the same kind of style that is there in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 verse 6, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53.12, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Substitutionary atonement. We need to remember the great substitute whose name is Jesus when we're thinking about what happens at the Lord's Supper. We're remembering the most profound act of love ever imaginable. I would also encourage you to be remembering the fact that when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, given its historic setting, and let's remember the historic setting, it's Passover. Now, timing isn't everything, but timing is really important here. And being a Gentile, growing up biblically illiterate, I don't always think in these terms. Some of you can identify with that. It's Passover. We just pass over that when we read it in the gospel accounts until <laughs> we grow a little bit spiritually and see that it's significant. It's Passover. And, and Jesus is in the upper room doing Passover kinds of things. And what are they doing? They, they, they're memorializing, remembering what God did in delivering His people Israel out of enslavement, enslavement of the Egyptians. And they're memorializing that great event. It's Passover time when Jesus is going to, to, to lead, if you will, in the Last Supper. Listen to Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day. Interesting. Connection. Purposeful connection. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Here it is, Passover, and Jesus is with his disciples. And what is he saying? Do this in remembrance of me. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about Jesus as our Passover lamb. He's our atoning sacrifice so that we might have life and not death. All of this is purposeful. All of this is what makes for a great, great meditation on the great work of Christ. Think about that old covenant world. That old covenant world where God would make uh, makes a covenant with His people Israel and He calls them to commitment and they say they're going to be committed and they're not and it's sin, 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 sin. And therefore, it's death, death, blood, blood, death, death, death. And here comes Jesus. John the Baptist saying, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. So there wouldn't be any more sacrifice. So what was something they were reminded of over and over again, they're not going to be reminded of anymore. Why don't you go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. 
And let's take a look at this. It becomes so profound, and I, I guess I'm just trying to pick a sampling of, of what we can remember as we're remembering his death. What can we remember about his death? Well, his life makes his death significant, and all the different aspects of his death, and Passover makes it significant, and Old Covenant, New Covenant makes it significant because you've got all of this death where the people are reminded of their sins again and again and again, and yet now we're going to be reminded of the fact that we have a perfect Savior who dealt with sins once and for all. And so I'm just trying to take a sampling of how great the, the well should be and the, how deep the well is of our remembering. Look, look at Hebrews chapter 10. I've been reading through Hebrews lately and just so impressed with the greatness of Christ. There's so much to remember about what He's done for us when you read it in Hebrews. Notice the contrast between the old and the new. Chapter 10, verse 1, For the law has but a shadow. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. How about that? You're going to do atonement, and you're going to do atonement, and you're going to do atonement, and you're going to do more atonement because we have been reminded of the fact that we need atonement because we've been reminded again and again and again that we're sinners. And so, in one sense, it doesn't work. Verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God, as it is written of Me and in the scroll of the book. Verse 8, And he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. This is what we preach together. Once for all. It's so different. Then verse 11, and every priest, this is Old Testament terminology, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Do notice in verse 14, it's a single offering. And through the single offering, he has perfected or perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And this is just what Hebrews is all about, and it's everywhere, in chapter 9 and chapter 7. But please notice, in the Old Testament, the people were reminded again and again and again and again that they did not have a perfect atonement. Christ comes one sacrifice for all time, and now what are we supposed to remember? We're supposed to remember that. Rest. Trust, dependence, perfect sacrifice. Since you're still in Hebrews, if you are, do notice in chapter 9, 
verse 11. He's using this Old Testament contrast, the Old Testament tabernacle, which is just a tent where they did the sacrifices. It says in verse 11, And when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation verse 12 he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by means of his own blood thus securing i love this part an eternal redemption it couldn't be more emphatic and more strong and more clear and more lovely and more magnificent Let's not speak in terms of we just are remembering Jesus. We are remembering Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who secured eternal redemption. It doesn't get any better than that. We go from Old Covenant to New Covenant. Christ being the mediator of the New Covenant, even as we learn in our text. Instead of remembering our guilt, we're remembering the greatness of the Savior. So when you hear those words and you read those words, do this in remembrance of me. Be moved to profundity. (laughs) Do this in remembrance of me. That's huge, huge. We should never tire of thinking anew, afresh about what Christ has done. Sure, the preacher can be boring because he just keeps emphasizing the same aspect. The preacher can be boring because he's lazy and he doesn't remind you of the great ramifications. I'll admit to all of those things. But when you hear those words, do this in remembrance of me, it is time to be impressed and it's time to remember the greatness of Jesus. What a contrast it is from the remembering that we would have done otherwise. Charles Spurgeon, that famous preacher of about a hundred years ago in London said, Remember, sinner, it is not thy hold of Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that is the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not to thy hope, but to Christ, the source of thy hope. Look not to thy faith, but to Christ, the author and finisher of thy faith. And if thou dost that, ten thousand devils cannot throw thee down. There is one thing which we all of us too much becloud in our preaching, though I believe we do it very unintentionally, namely the great truth that it is not prayer, it is not faith, it is not our doings, it is not our feelings upon which we must rest, but upon Christ and Christ alone. Let communion be that kind of reminder. Jesus Christ, atone for my sins. And therefore, I don't have to do anything. It's all of Him. It's all of Him. We trust in Him. We remember that great Savior. It's all Christ.
Number three, a third priority here that reminds us of the greatness of Christ. At the Lord's table, His command to eat and drink is obeyed. At the Lord's table, His command to eat and drink is obeyed. We could say obeying to simplify. Do notice in verse 24 and verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 11, in both of those verses, we see that command, do this, do this. And so today, when we eat and we drink, we're obeying Jesus. Now that might seem like kind of a trivial matter, but think about it. Think about the significance of what's happening. Think about our confession, our confession that we're making together. Who is Jesus from a human perspective? Who is Jesus seen as being from a human perspective when when he was here on earth by the majority? Oh, Jesus, the, the son of a carpenter. Well, sort of the son of a carpenter. Oh, Jesus from Nazareth. And you know the word on the street is, and history shows us, nothing good has ever come out of Nazareth. Oh, and not only that, given that he's sort of the son of a carpenter, he's, he, he's a peasant. Oh, and not only that, he said he was the Messiah, the promised one of Israel. But you know what? Even his own people ended up giving him over to the Gentiles to be crucified. And what are we going to do today? Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me because I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, because I have perfectly and completely satisfied the wrath of God and I perfectly and completely have obeyed the law of God and I perfectly and completely have won salvation for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So what are we doing? From a human perspective, we're obeying a peasant From a human perspective, we've got to somehow lower standards and look like idiots. But what we're saying is, we believe He is Christ the Lord. By obeying Him, we are saying a lot about Him. He is no mere man. He is the Sovereign. We're agreeing with His Father who said from heaven, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. We're confessing Christ before each other before a watching world sometimes, and we are confessing Christ before God Himself. It's pretty profound. We're saying Jesus is Lord. He's Yahweh, God. It's a great thing. It's a profound thing that we do. It's a common declaration that we make together. It should give us assurance too when we do this, if we're really thinking about what it means. Given the fact that Jesus said, recorded in Matthew 10.32, you'll know the words, even if you don't know the reference. Jesus said, remember, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father who's in heaven. So to stand up and say, I believe that Jesus is Lord to the degree that I will do what He says in eating and drinking. We're confessing Him. We're confessing Him. An amount of assurance should come from that. Number four, a fourth profound reality regarding the Christ-centeredness of what communion should be would be at the Lord's table, His church is united. His church is united. 
If you look at chapter 11, you'll see the emphasis. And sometimes we skip it because we're individualistic and we kind of think about ourselves and, and our personal relationship with Jesus, which is good and helpful, but it's not exclusively that. So in chapter 11, you start working your way through. In chapter 11, verse 17, when you come together. Verse 18, when you come together as a church. Verse 20, when you come together. Verse 33, when you come together. Verse 34, when you come together. It's unmistakable. Communion is something for us to celebrate corporately. It's not an individualistic thing. Yes, indeed, I want to remember Jesus all of the time. Like Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy. But this unique way of remembering Jesus is designed to be for us as a church when we come together, when we come together, when we come together, when we come together. Positively, that tells us something about its unifying effect. Negatively, it tells us that it's not something to be done outside of the body when we come together. Think about the unifying effect that it has if we stop and think about it. We're going to gather like this and we're, each one of us, in effect, by eating and drinking, if we have our brains engaged, are saying, Jesus is my perfect atoning Savior. Which has all kinds of implications. That means I've been saved not because I'm a good person. I'm not, I'm not saved because I have more money than some others. I'm not saved because I purposely don't have more money than others. Because I'm so godly, I give away all my stuff. Uh, It's none of those things. We don't stop and think about it very often, but really, if we stop and think about it, we're all coming together saying we're the same. I'm a sinner and so are you. We have the same Savior. He saved us by grace alone, through faith alone, based upon His own perfect work alone. And you know what? You have different preferences than I have. You shop at Target. I shop at Walmart. I shop at Salvation Army. You shop at Goodwill. I shop at Brooks Brothers. You shop at J. Crew. Point being, we're totally different. Totally different people. Look different, talk different, have different interests and likes. You know what unites us? What unites us is we have the same Savior who saves sinners like us. Not only that, in the mix of things, as we forget the gospel so easily, we're remembering the gospel, we're remembering the fact that we are all the same in Jesus, and not only that, it's going to refocus our minds that, you know what, we need to be unified in purpose, therefore. What, what, what are we really doing here? Is this really just a club so we can you know, get business leads from each other or something like that? What are, what are we doing here? Well, it's reuniting our focus. What we're doing here is we are about the gospel, like Philippians 1.27 and following. We are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the furtherance of the gospel. So it refocuses our mind again and again and again and again that we need to be together Unified, but not just unified, together unified in purpose. You could even draw the circle a little bit broader. We need to get along. We need to get along as a church. We need to have the same purpose, so unified in purpose. But we could also even broaden the circle and say, isn't it amazing? We've actually uh, been unified with all true believers of all times. On all continents. 
We're about really one thing. It's Christ and His gospel. We're not going to take the time to go there, but in Second Chronicles chapter 30, we learn something of how the Passover brought unity among the Israelites. Second Chronicles 30. And then listen to these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Logistically, that's a problem. Okay? I wish there was just one giant loaf of bread. Because it would be a great sermon illustration. Because it is a sermon illustration in 1 Corinthians 10. So here's the mega loaf. You know, everybody come get some. But don't take too much because then there won't be any left for me. But what a good illustration. Just as there's one loaf of bread, we are one body. So it doesn't make any sense for us to have multiple purposes and multiple agendas and to not get along with each other. It's really, really helpful for us. Let's move to number five. A fifth standout priority when it comes to glorifying Christ in communion. At the Lord's table, His people's devotion is examined. His people's devotion is examined. We see this in chapter 11 uh, of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, uh, verse 28 and following. I need to make my way back to 1 Corinthians 11. He talks about in verse 27, uh, eating and drinking unworthily. Let a person examine himself. So this is an opportunity for us to examine ourselves and to eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And he talks about the priority of this. And if this is not observed, there could be discipline from the Lord. I'll let you read that at your leisure. But I want to say one thing about it because we forget about this. This is going to be a challenge because I'm a preacher and I just said I was going to say one thing. And I'm supposed to have integrity, not be a liar. See, I've already gotten off the path. But anyway. Before I get to the one thing. (laughs) We'll just stop our clocks for a second. We are to think about our own lives before we come and eat and drink. When we eat and drink, we are even acknowledging that we're together. We're unified. We're not prideful people. We're humble people because we're sinners saved by grace. So if you're living in sin, don't show up to eat and drink the Lord's Supper. Repent. And be restored. Don't show up and say, I'm, I'm coming to declare and pronounce and, and confess with all of you that Jesus paid for my sins. He atoned for my sins perfectly. He's my perfect sanctifier. He's glorified me. When in fact, what you're doing is in conflict with what you're saying. It's a great built-in mechanism. Right? We're not saved by works. We don't clean up our life and live perfect lives and then show up for the Lord's Supper. No, as a matter of fact, the Lord's Supper is us remembering the fact that we're sinners and He atoned for our sins perfectly. But there is something built into it that says, don't live a life of hypocrisy. Don't live in such a way as you're saying, well, I believe in justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But you know what? Sanctification is optional. No, 
Read Titus 3. It's actually tied to the cross as well, but that's for another time. Okay, now for my one thing. Take the time to read the whole context of chapter 10 and chapter 11. Right now, ready? No. <laughs> what we forget about sometimes is the context has to do with the examples are social conflicts, social kinds of sins. The emphasis is not on adultery. The emphasis is not on drunkenness. The emphasis is not on those things, even though drunkenness is talked about. The emphasis is actually on the fact that you are not loving your neighbor, your fellow believer. You're looking down on them. You're not treating them with love. You know, the kinds of things we typically think are just normal in church life. Don't commit the big sins, but you can do all the normal churchy sins because that is a hotbed for gossip anyway. That's the very stuff he's dealing with, first and foremost. You know what? You need to stop looking down on those people because they don't look like you and they don't send their kids to the same school you send your kids to. Really? You know what? You've got to stop doing that. And you've got to stop looking down on people because they either make less or more money than you do. You've got to stop looking at the other people in any way other than in a loving way. Say, you know what? Equally sinful, equally saved, equally loving Jesus, I'm ready to come to the table. It's a great built-in unifier that causes us to examine our, our motives in thinking about other people. Who does that guy think he is? I've been a Christian longer than he's been a Christian. It's kind of easy to have that attitude. Or you think, who does that person think they are? They've been a Christian so long, they forgot what Christianity is. Or whatever it might be. How about the fact that if I've been a Christian for 20 years, and you've been a Christian for 20 minutes, in the eyes of God, we stand on equal footing. We're the same. And He's promised to sanctify both of us. Communion is a great opportunity for us knowing that it's coming, to do business with God as believers. It's kind of interesting. It's not exactly a one-to-one -one correlation, but you think about the Passover, and the Passover was a great reminder to the people of Israel that they were not dealing with just some kind of chumpy deity. They knew historically what this God had done. He'd been gracious to them. He'd spared them because of the blood. But they also knew what it was to hear the cries of the parents. We're not talking about a demigod, a little god. We're not talking about somebody who, you know, is kind of sort of powerful, kind of sort of sovereign. Oh no, let's love and praise this God who is amazingly gracious and merciful. Yes, let's do that and let's remember that we're not dealing with someone who's like I dream of genie. Serious business. I need to get along with you. And I need to not look down on you. And you need to get along with me and not look down on me. And we need to love each other. Because God is serious. To the point where some people were sick, some people were dying. Read the text, pretty interesting. Okay, number six, finally. And then a final question. At the Lord's table, His return is expected. You could say expecting in one word. His return is expected. Did you see there in verse 26 of chapter 11? 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We can go a lot of different places with this. How about for starters, if he's coming back, if he's coming back, that means he died and rose again. And that means he ascended if he's coming back. Well, I realize that's kind of a no-brainer here at Omaha Bible Church, but if you just stop and think about it, it's a great reminder to us that we're not absolute idiots. He's coming again. Why? Because he didn't stay dead. It's bizarre to me how people, they would call themselves, you know, Christians and, and they would call themselves a church. And you know what? We actually don't actually believe in things that are miraculous. Well, why, why do you do communion? You pronounce judgment on your own head because you're saying you're doing this till he comes back again. You don't even believe he's coming back again because you don't believe he died and you don't believe he rose or, or one of those things. Or he died and he stayed dead. How about even in its simplest form, we are proclaiming the fact that we believe Jesus conquered the grave and he's coming back. Or let's go somewhere else with it. If he's coming back, then that motivates me to want to be faithful. He didn't say, I'm leaving and I hope you take care. In fact, our Bibles would have us know that as he left, he will come back. So we have a stewardship. So this is very helpful for Omaha Bible Church and for you as an individual. Let's make sure our priorities are His priorities. It's a stewardship. And what is His priority? Well, fidelity to the gospel, first and foremost, remembering what He's done, proclaiming it to all nations. It helps me to combat spiritual laziness. So if I can just be conscious of what's happening when we're actually reading the passage again and again, we're doing this again and again until He comes... Oh, until he comes. <laughs> He's coming back. That has an impact on me. It certainly has an impact on me. It also has an impact on me. Let's go another direction with it. Okay, the older I get, the more frequency of doctor visits, more difficulty for me personally as a Christian I think I struggle more the longer I'm a Christian maybe it's because God convicts us greater and we can handle more life gets harder and harder ministry gets harder and harder and you sometimes think you know what alright already can I do this again can I handle one more day turn on the news and everything looks like it's going to hell in a handbasket. this is not good Then you have friends in ministry do really ungodly things and that's not good either. And you're just going, man, this is insult to injury. And not only that, my body's falling apart. Not only that, a dear brother or sister in Christ or physically in your family dies. Or you watch them go and get ravaged with some sort of illness. In your family, close family, you just go, and we do. We're going to keep eating and we're going to keep drinking, remembering Jesus until he comes. And if we were to take the time and see what's associated with his coming, we see hope is associated with his coming to the point where in a very 
figurative language sort of way. Romans chapter 8 talks about suffering and pain to the point where even the creation is in fellowship with us, saying, how long, O Lord, in effect? Groaning, waiting. They're waiting for Him to come back. So you face persecution, you face illness, you face frustration, you face the ups and downs of life, you face all of this tough stuff. Communion is a very, very helpful reminder of the second coming of Jesus where He will restore all things and He will make every wrong right. As Paul writes, reconciling all things is what He did when He was on the cross. We're just waiting for Him to come and actually bring that into reality. I'm thankful that the second coming is tied to communion because communion is something we're to do again and again and again and we're waiting for Christ to come because He's going to be the solution to our problems. Maybe one more helpful thing about that. As we participate in this sacred meal, Revelation 19.9 reminds us that there's another sacred meal we're waiting for. We're taking bites of crackers. It's bread, unleavened bread, and we're, we're drinking out of this little, little thimble. In many ways, it's anticlimactic. We're eating and drinking. It's climactic because we're remembering what Christ has done, even with a view toward His return. You know what's going to happen when He returns? Revelation 19. The marriage supper of the Lamb. I don't think there'll be any thimbles and any crackers. And Jesus will be there. And there will be no more struggling with sin. It's awesome. And I'm reminded of that again and again when we together in this broken, fallen world do the thimble thing. We're waiting for Him to come as we do this because we're waiting for a feast. We're there there with Him, the restorer of all things. I love what Jesus said in these words regarding this when He said, I tell you, this is Matthew 26, 29, I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Cheers. (laughs) I can't wait. There he is. Last Supper, drinking and eating with his disciples. And he's saying, I'm not going to do this again. Such a glass will not touch my lips again until I'm doing the same thing the other side of the cross, the other side of the resurrection, the other side of the ascension, the other side of my return. And as a Christian, I say, come Lord Jesus. Maranatha, can't wait for that feast. Can't wait for that feast. But we get a little taste because the taste is causing us to anticipate His return. It's built into our communion practice. I want to end on this question. Controversial question. Is the Lord's Supper also a means of grace. Is the Lord's Supper also a means of grace? Now, depending on how much you know about church history or historical theology or things like that, you might be saying, I don't even understand why that's controversial. I don't even understand what it means. That's fair. You're still in the right place. 
Some of you say, I know exactly what he's talking about. And now I'm wondering how he's going to answer. See, there's controversy. And the controversy would be on the scale of, again, over here, some are going to say it actually atones for your sins. If you eat and drink, even by the fact that you're eating and drinking, you are saved. Your sins are atoned for. It's an unbloody re-sacrificing of Jesus that happens on the altar. It changes when the bells are rung. Other extreme, let's go way over here, it doesn't do anything. And we put all the emphasis we could possibly muster on remembrance. Just remembrance. To the point where we're almost saying it doesn't mean anything. Because we're so afraid of being like those guys over there who have a huge problem. And they do. Not sitting over here, sorry guys. My <laughs> church split waiting to happen. Oh, I'm kidding. This extreme here and this extreme here. And this extreme here is going to say it is not a means of grace. This is not a way that God gives us grace. Saving grace is way over here. But in the middle, there are some who would say, actually, this is, this is a way that God gives us grace. I'm going to answer the question, as long as I can explain myself, and say, I believe most definitely it is a means of grace. I wouldn't have always said that. I'm not over there. No way, Jose. Because of that, the cross... But I'm not over here saying it's just basically nothing. How about this? Grace is God giving us something we don't deserve. I find it very, very helpful to have an opportunity again and again and again until he comes in a unique and extraordinary way to have my attention refocused, re-riveted on the gospel. God has given us communion as a way of remembering what Christ has done. And it has huge influence and impact. It's unifying to the body. It's glorifying to Christ because I'm remembering what he's done on my behalf, no doubt. It's sanctifying in my life because I've got to think, am I living in unconfessed, open rebellion here? I'd say it is a means of grace. Most certainly. Most certainly. I'm so glad. I say, God, thank you for giving us the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, Communion, whatever it is you prefer to call it. Because it brings us here again and again and again. And it's so easy for us to lose sight of what our priority and focus is. Priority and focus is the Gospel. I'm going to thank God today, and I'm thanking God that He gave us such a good and great gift. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for opportunities like this, even now as we have an opportunity to eat and drink, to eat and drink and be thoughtful of the fact that you loved us so much you gave, us, gave yourself up for us so that we could have a perfect redemption in Christ. Lord, help us to see the significance of what you've done so that our time even in eating and drinking could be all the more significant. You've been gracious to us and you've been kind in so many different ways, not only in saving us, 
but in also reminding us again and again and again that salvation is of the Lord. It's not of ourselves. Lord, thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for helping us to grow spiritually, to love Christ even more. And now as we prepare to eat and as we prepare to drink, may we be impressed with the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is our righteousness. In his name we pray, amen. All right, we're going to be served the bread and then we're going to be served the wine. If you just wait to be served before we eat, that is uh, preferable. So let's go ahead and meditate on this great Christ. If you need something to read, think about the greatness of Christ. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 is just a great text regarding this. And let's have this be a good time of worship. Serve us, please. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22 says this. Jesus, the guarantor of a better covenant. Our guarantee for acceptance before God is Jesus because He kept the law perfectly in our place. Let's remember He is our guarantor. That is our assurance. He is our assurance. And He said, do this in remembrance of me. And so let's do that together and eat together. We are thankful, Lord, that you have sworn that you took the oath and that you delivered, that you are faithful to your word, to your promises that you did indeed fulfill all righteousness and that you did so on our behalf. Thank you for making this so clear to us. Thank you for being such a great and gracious Savior. And help us. Help us to see the greatness of your riches and the profound nature of your love because we do want to honor you as our great Savior. Amen. By means of His own blood, He secured an eternal redemption. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Let's do that. Our gladness is in you, O Lord, faithful to your own covenant promises while we perpetually break our promises. We are glad in you, O Lord, because through your own blood you secured an eternal redemption, that we have been set free from our sins and that we have been joined to a new master none other than You, Christ the Lord. We are rejoicing today in Your promise that You will not remember our sins and You will not remember our lawless deeds, that You will remember them no more. We acknowledge that this good news to our souls is because of Your own covenant faithfulness. And because of your perfect redemption that is none other than an eternal redemption. 
And so we give you thanks. Lord, may we leave here people with joy in our hearts. May we leave here going to all sorts of complex things in life. May we leave here, however, may we leave rejoicing and glad in you. May we leave here refreshed on the truth of the gospel, glorying in Christ Jesus our Lord. May we not leave here just the same, having been reminded of you, by you of your great grace. Thank you that you do not give us what we deserve, but you give us redemption in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.